Hi, welcome to Hungary in Nashville. May I take your order? Two sweet teas, please. Got it. Coming right up. I was at the Hermitage recently and learned that Andrew Jackson made whiskey on his farm. Since Monday was President's Day, I thought I'd look to see what other presidents made whiskey and if they drank. Well, lots of presidents made spirits, but George Washington probably leads the way. In the latter years of his life, his distillery was among the five largest producers in the colonies, and it was the most profitable product on his farm. The folks at Mount Vernon have rebuilt the distillery since it was burned in a fire, and now Steve Bayshore makes whiskey using Washington's recipe. So we got on the phone, and he told me about the whiskey he makes today. And as a special treat, at the end of the program, I'm going to tell you the favorite drinks of some of our presidents, including Washington, who didn't drink much whiskey. His drink of choice was Madeira wine or a dark porter beer from Philadelphia. I'm Jim Grinstead, and I'm hungry in Nashville. Let's eat. So Washington, when he's returning from the presidency, really trying to retire for the third time in his life, he hires this gentleman named James Anderson, who had been involved in distilling back home in his home country of Scotland. And Anderson was a, a very smart man and knew a lot about agriculture. And when he sees Washington's property, he's the guy who says, you know, you need a distillery here. Like, as you said, Washington at first was hesitant. And I think there's a few reasons for that. First of all, he's at this point 65 years old. And I think from the span of his life, he wasn't thinking, okay, now I'll come home and I'll build another large business. I think he was really looking to retire and also, he didn't know a lot about the whiskey business itself, so he, he was not well-versed in how to operate an alcohol business. Washington thought, since Anderson had done such a good job running the farm, it was probably a good idea to trust this Scotsman and his ideas, especially since he'd had experience running stills before. Washington's one caveat was that Anderson starts slow. Starting small, I think that's typical of Washington. He's a smart man with money, and so he, he thought, let's, let's do a test run in the cooperage and see how it goes. Ah, yes, the cooperage. In Washington's day, there were no bottling lines to distribute whiskey. It was put in barrels. The people who made them were called coopers. Washington already had a cooperage on one of the five farms he owned. He built a large merchant mill uh, on one of the farms in 1770, which ground grain for himself but also exported flour. And so the cooperage was built next to that building because they needed flour barrels mainly. So he had coopers working for him. Several of them were enslaved workers. Uh, sometimes there's paid workers that are coopers. And then later in life when he builds the distillery, the natural location to build that building was next to the grist mill because you needed grain to make whiskey. Therefore, that initial foray into whiskey, Washington being a frugal man, told Anderson, well, why don't you just use the cooperage and we'll see how it goes. So they uh, set up the two stills there. And then with that success, of course, he wanted to go bigger. So he built the larger facility. So coopering in the 18th century is just a necessity. You need those coopers and you need them to put all sorts of goods in. For you whiskey wonks like me, Anderson's mash bill was 60% rye, 35% corn, with malted barley filling in the remaining 5%. Steve still uses that mash bill, but he doesn't know if it tastes the same as it did in Washington's time. I think that there's a misnomer today that everything made in the past had to have been real rough. Well, well, maybe some of it was, but keep in mind, you've got a Scottish gentleman making it along with his son, who's quite talented at it. And then you think of flavor profiles, it's got to first go back to the grain. 
I've searched the records for hours and hours, and all you see is rye. It doesn't say the varietal. And then we know a little more about the corns he may have been growing, but quality, it's hard to know. Um, it's just like with scotch today. I, I, I doubt very much that the scotch we enjoy today tasted the same in 1498 or 1550. So I would say on profile-wise, rye is always peppery and spicy compared to sweet. So I imagine it's in a range of that that profile, but I really couldn't pinpoint it for you without, unfortunately, I don't have a bottle of it here from 1797. So I, I wish we did. All that has been long consumed. I think the, the other nature of, of our whiskey that we make today, because it's wood-fired stills made in a unique older, you know, restored building, reconstructed building, our whiskey has hints of smoke in it. And it's not from peat. It's from the wood-fired stills and, and the whiskeys in that building as we barrel and everything as well and bottle. So perhaps it had a little hint of that just because of the nature of the process. The other factor is the water. Um, and you, you know, as you all know, in your part of the country, water is critical to good taste in whiskey. And you have that in Kentucky and Tennessee. Washington had a freshwater well that was sunk behind the distillery. And again, we have no way of knowing how pure or what that water was like. But he didn't have the advantage of the incredible water in other parts of the country. Well, if you've got a still, you can still make lots of other things like vodka and gin. Washington made some other spirits, and today there are other unique beverages coming out of the still. The other uh, things made in Washington's time were brandies. Like any large landowner, Washington had orchards here, uh, peach and apple uh, primarily. And so we know from our records he made peach and apple brandy, so we've done that on a few occasions. We even made a peach eau de vie once, which was really nice. We do some barrel aging. You had mentioned that earlier. So in Washington's day, it was all unaged. But we, we, have, made, we have a two-year-old rye we sell and a four-year-old rye, some aged brandies as well. We've done two other things here in, in this era I've been here that were outside the normal portfolio. Is we made single malt whiskey in 2012. That was a special project connecting the history of our site in Mount Vernon to the Scottish influence. So that year, it was the 100th anniversary of the Scotch Whiskey Association. So our main partner and donor for the project was the Distilled Spirits Council, and they got together with the Scots and decided we should do a single malt whiskey. So believe it or not, they shipped over about 3,000 pounds of Scottish malt from Scotland. I ground that in the water mill, and that was one of those ones where I have other folks that work with me, but I pulled rank that day as the head miller, and I ground all that myself as I thought, I'll never get the opportunity again to to grind Scott, uh, you know, peated and unpeated malt from Scotland. So, you know, we didn't really know how that was going to launch out. But what happened was they sent three Scottish distillers over to Virginia to work with us. Uh, Bill Lumsden of Glenmore and G, Andy Cant from Cardew, where all the Johnny Walkers made, and uh, John Campbell from Lafroig. Our consultant at that time was Dave Pickerel, and Dave passed away not too long ago. He had been with Makers for years, but his big brand that you're probably familiar with is Whistlepig. So Dave taught us some of the methods of fermentation of how to do scotch. And uh, we made, you know, a small run with those gentlemen. And, and that was used for fundraising for Mount Vernon. And there were only uh, 60 bottles of that made. And so it's the rarest of rare. And that was a real special project. And, and over the years, John Campbell has come back and worked with us one or two other times. And He's a fantastic guy, and we hope to get all those guys back together one day. And then the other unique thing we did in 2018, well, two unique things. 
early in the year, we made rum. Of course, the colonies were a rum colony. After the revolution, we become more whiskey oriented. The history of rum here at Mount Vernon, we have records of Washington procuring it from both in the Caribbean and, and local distilleries. Order up. Anderson came through for Washington, and eventually the operation grew into five stills that made it one of the largest distilleries in the colonies. In 1799, it made a profit of $7,500, or about $157,000 in today's money. In 1798, the first year that the distillery opened with five stills running, they made 4,500 gallons of whiskey that year. And then 1799 is really the staggering year, the last year of Washington's life. They made 10,942 gallons of whiskey. You know, we, we do everything 18th century style here, so we row mash by hand. Once we started this a few years ago, and you look at the numbers they made back then, it's staggering. And there were eight men working in there that made that whiskey. There were two paid staff. James Anderson's son, John, and a paid assistant, and then six young enslaved men that, that did the work. And it's a tremendous testament to those men, how much whiskey they produced in those two years. It should be noted, many enslaved people worked on Washington's farms. The names of those who helped operate the distillery were Hanson, Peter, Nat, Daniel, James, and Timothy. As sales increased, the workload increased not only for those running the still, but also the cooperage. And there was another group that had to rush to keep up with production. And I think it drove the millers nuts because if you run the math on some of that, for instance, our run in November, we, we made about five to 600 proof gallons. We're pretty small. It was about 10,000 pounds of grain. If you can imagine grinding all that by water power, how much grain went through that mill in Washington's last two years. And that mill still had to grind wheat for export. It still had to grind other corns to feed the plantation. One thinks that millers and farmers always get along together or or millers and distillers. I don't know if the, the head miller there was too happy about the distillery or not. Steve knows something about milling. It was what he did before signing on at Mount Vernon. The still was a success. So what happened to it when Washington died? Well, in the late 1799, two things are shaping up. Uh, One is that he's written his will and having no children of his own, he decided to leave his estate to three nephews. And one of those nephews was a a young man named Lawrence Lewis. And Lewis had married Martha Washington's granddaughter, Nellie. And remember, Martha and George had no children of their own. So these kids and grandkids were from, descended from her first husband. And so knowing that Nellie was going to marry Lawrence, Washington in the will, left the mill and distillery to them. And he, I think he figured we're going to leave them with two you know, money-making enterprises. And so they took that over, and Lewis ran it a few more years, but it was never really as profitable. I mean, that, that farm, nor was Mount Vernon as profitable once it was subdivided into thirds. So 1808 was the last written record we have of whiskey being made there. If you want to meet Steve and see the stills, you can visit Mount Vernon. The website, mountvernon.org, will tell you what you need to know. Now, I promised you a treat about what other presidents like to drink, and I'll get to that in a moment. Order up! Local president Andrew Jackson made, sold, and drank whiskey at the Hermitage. James K. Polk, another Tennessee president, 
drank a little wine, champagne, or brandy. Andrew Johnson, the third president from Tennessee, had a cold when he was sworn in as vice president in 1865. He believed some whiskey might help him get through it. Well, he got through it, but not without slurring the words to his oath of office. His predecessor, Abraham Lincoln, rarely drank. William McKinney had a drink named after him. It was called McKinley's Delight. The recipe called for three ounces of 100-proof rye whiskey, one ounce of sweet vermouth, two dashes of cherry brandy, and a dash of absinthe. Herbert Hoover's wife reportedly poured his extensive wine collection down the drain when prohibition became the law. Gin martinis were also the favorite of FDR. JFK consumed a variety of booze but favored Heineken beer because it was imported and trendy. LBJ loved scotch. Jimmy Carter rarely drank, but when he did, it was white wine. And as you might suspect, Ronald Reagan, the former governor of the Golden State, liked California wines. Bill Clinton liked a mouthful of a drink called Snakebite. It's made with 8 ounces of beer and 8 ounces of hard cider. I can't say for sure, but it may also have been the favorite of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where pesky snakes were known to roam. Which brings us to Barack Obama, who is known to favor beer. When guests were present, the buzz is that he sometimes offered them a glass of White House honey ale, made with honey from the White House hives. Anything else? Okay, come back soon. Hungry in Nashville is brought to you by Out of My Pocket Productions and is copyrighted 2020 by me, Jim Grinstead. You can listen to Hungry in Nashville on our website, hungryinnashville.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can like us on Facebook or enter your email address on the website so you'll be notified when new episodes are posted. But the best thing you can do to support the podcast is to tell your friends about it and encourage them to subscribe. And if you have an idea for something you'd like to hear, don't be shy. Send it to idea at hungryinnashville.com. Thanks for listening, and may you eat well. Well.